Welcome to our Monday edition of Chris Bay Relive on this President's Day. I have something good for you at the Radio Backyard Fence in observance of George Washington's birthday here on the third Monday in February. Joining me will be a good friend who I've had the opportunity to speak with many times. Nearly 40 years ago, I first met him, Dr. Marvin Olasky, and he has gone back through the presidents and has chosen some of them right about in a book it's titled moral vision leadership from george washington to joe biden it's our featured resource today at chrisfabrylive.org it's a walk through history and like the introduction by russell moore says i found myself reading stories i had never heard before saying wait why haven't i heard this so i hope you'll join us today for the conversation our program's recorded don't call us today let me thank our team. Ryan McConaughey is doing all things technical. Tricia is our producer. And let me thank our Backfence partners who support this program financially. Yes, we are listener supported. And if you give a gift each month, first, you help us continue these conversations. But you'll also receive my weekly video that Ryan puts together. Uh, it's called The Backfence Post. You get a signed copy of my novel, The Promise of Jesse Woods. And you can receive our thank you to friends that we offer each month. Would you reach out? Let us hear from you here on President's Day. Go to chrisfabrylive.org or call 866-95-FABRY. And thank you for being a Backfence partner with us. Again, the website, chrisfabrylive.org. As I just said, I think I first spoke with our guest around 1987 or so when he began his Turning Point series about the Power of World Views. He wrote The Prodigal Press, came out in 1988. The Press and Abortion, again, 1988. The Tragedy of American Compassion, which was a big book. He's written about the history of abortion in America. Compassionate Conservatism came out in 2000. And most recently, we talked about a great book, Lament for a Father. But back in 1999, he wrote a book called The American Leadership Tradition. He's gone back and he's taken a hard look at that, and the outcome is moral vision, leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. Again, you can find it at chrisfabrylive.org. A quick background of Dr. Marvin Olasky. He graduated from Yale in 71, gained a Ph.D. in American culture from the University of Michigan, professor at the University of Texas at Austin for 25 years. He edited World Magazine for nearly 30 years. And it is a great pleasure to talk with you again, Dr. Olasky. Happy President's Day. And happy President's Day to you. Wow. I would like to say that all those years seem like a day. I could echo Jacob in that, but actually, when you run through that list, it seems like about 40 years. Oh, there was so much more I could have said, too. <laughs> and I remember when you came on in the 80s, it was very much—the one that I remember, remember most is the prodigal press, because at the, at the time, there was a lot going on in the press, and, of, you know, is there— of bias in the news and pushback against that. And you really had some strong opinions back there, didn't you? Well, I did. And uh, in a sense, uh, we have to be careful what we pray for or wish for. Uh, I certainly wanted to see a much greater diversity in the press than was apparent back in the in the 80s. But as it's turned out, we've had not just diversity, but uh, uh, an increasing tribalism, which is a problem. So, 
Yeah, we've, we have we have a lot of changes over these years, a lot of good stuff, but also a lot of bad stuff. Reading from your new introduction, when the 1999 version of this book came out, David Brooks wrote in the New York Times, quote, Olasky's historical judgments are so crude and pinched, <laughs> whatever insights Olasky might have wrung out of his approach are obliterated by his censoriousness, nuance and thoughtful analysis are absent from Olasky's account. And you say, end quote, and you say, ouch, I hated that review. Problem is, Brooks was mainly right. Tell me more about that. Well, I was so uh, concerned about, upset by uh, Bill Clinton's uh, infidelity and especially the, the Monica Lewinsky affair that uh, I think I was hard on him, uh, part of which he certainly deserved, but also um, not really understanding some others, but uh, applying uh, too critical a spirit, perhaps, to, to some rather than actually understanding where they came from. So the difference between that version 25 years ago and this version is what? Well, two things. Uh, number one, subtracted some of the censorious statements that David rightly objected to, uh, I had a little bit of an overreaction to Bill Clinton's infidelity. It deserved a reaction, but I was probably uh, over the top on that. And then secondly, added uh, some new material on the people I had profiled, uh, and particularly uh, how they dealt with the racial uh, divisions, including slavery, and then what happened in Reconstruction and after Reconstruction, which was slavery by another name. So I added material on that, and I also added uh, material on the Trail of Tears because I had pretty much neglected the situation of Native Americans from the 1790s through the 1840s. And then I also added some chapters on people who interested me particularly, Harry Truman, one of our most underrated presidents, um, others, uh, uh, including the more recent people, of course, uh, 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 Joe Biden and uh, and Donald Trump, but then also some of the uh, uh, other individuals I just found fascinating, like Ida Wells, who was a, a courageous black female journalist in the late 19th century. So more material, more people, and hopefully interestingly, hopefully interesting enough so that readers won't comment to me what one very kind lady uh, said to me. I really like that book you wrote. I read a page every night before I fall asleep. <laughs> Don't you love hearing that? Well, I'm Loved so it. glad that you did include the Native American because I, the the slavery issue, particularly at the beginning of the book through the middle, it, it just runs all the way through there and beyond that as well. But then to to see what happened and why it happened, the Trail of Tears and the pushing away and the not keeping the agreements, you know, the, the covenants that were made uh, with the Native Americans, that was fascinating. I wonder if if for you going back this through this 25 years later, there were things that you saw, like Russell Moore said in the new introduction, that you saw that you hadn't seen the first, that you wrote the first time. That's a good question. Uh, I certainly um, missed a lot of the signals and policies involving both 
Black Americans and Native Americans. That's Dr. Marvin Olasky, who has written Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. It's our featured resource. Just go to chrisfabrylive.org, click through today's information. This is revised and expanded edition of the American Leadership Tradition. It came out some 25 years ago. More with Dr. Olasky on this President's Day, straight ahead on Moody Radio. Thanks for joining us today on this Monday edition of Chris Fabry Live. It is President's Day, and in celebration of that, I thought we'd have Dr. Marvin Olasky. A new book just came out, which is a revised and expanded edition of a book written in 1999. It's called Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. You can find it at chrisfabrylive.org. One of the people that I miss the most in the world today is Charles Colson, and he wrote the foreword to the original 1999 edition. Uh, just take a minute or two and talk about Charles Colson. Oh, um, I'm, I'm assuming that listeners know maybe a little bit about his background, but for very briefly, he was known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man, worked in the White House uh, during uh, Nixon's first term, 69 through 73, uh, uh, ended up going to jail for some months uh, because of his involvement in Watergate stuff. And in jail, uh, Jesus met him as he's met so many other people, uh, and that changed his life. He wrote a book in the mid-70s about that experience of coming to Christ, which he called Born Again, and that those words uh, by journalists made those words characteristic of the of the whole period, and he didn't just go back to his political pursuits, but based on what he learned in prison, started an organization small at first, and it's grown a lot called Prison Fellowship, and uh, was very active uh, promoting that. Uh, I've been to uh, a couple of prisons where there were Prison Fellowship activities. One in uh, Sugarland, Texas, uh, changed a lot of lives there as prisoners came to learn about Jesus, as Colson had. And uh, over the decades, he really became uh, not, a, not a hatchet man anymore, but exactly the opposite, a compassionate Christian uh, who uh, was very charitable with his time, uh, helped lots of people. Certainly, I learned a lot from him. And, and uh, back in 2000 and 2001, as we were trying to uh, put some aspects of uh, what was called compassionate conservatism into uh, uh, into what was going on. He was very helpful in showing me some of the things that were going right and some of the things that were going wrong. So uh, just a wonderful, uh, smart, compassionate Christian. What I love about what you've done, and, and if you're here, any of the old Breakpoint program that Chuck Colson uh, voiced and, and wrote and put together— you will hear the news, but not just the news, the, the spiritual import of it. And as I was reading through Moral Vision, haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but as I was reading through it, it was like, I don't see what you've found, the spiritual history of George Washington and what Jefferson did or didn't say. <laughs> um, you don't see that in the modern textbooks. They take out the religious, quote-unquote, from a lot of our history, don't they? Well, they do. And that's really, in a sense, uh, 
slicing out the heart of a person. Uh, uh, Colson changed because God changed his heart. We certainly see the changed uh, sensibility and understanding of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, during the Civil War. Uh, we see the way uh, Grover Cleveland uh, moved from his young man's roistering and uh, adultery uh, into being a, a, a fortress of, of a man, uh, uh, really fighting for what's right, regardless of the political consequences when he was president. You see this in lots of people. You see the way God changes lives. And if you ignore that, then you're missing a lot about the person. And of course, the other thing that, that uh, originally animated me doing this research in the late 90s and I came back to was just so much of what kids learn in school today is, oh, uh, the big picture, big economic waves, big demographic waves. And they don't really understand the role of individuals. Uh, they're just looking at the tides rolling in and rolling out. But character counts. Uh, perhaps even even more so than than in previous years, presidents are surrounded by flatterers. Uh, but a president who aspires to be a public servant needs to be a person of character, and that's something that uh, the education in high schools and colleges often overlooks. You present the book in different sections. I think it's four: yeah, early America, transforming America, modern America, and then postmodern America, with a really important epilogue. So I want to focus mostly on early America, but before I ask you about George Washington and Jefferson and, and others, can you talk about the complexity of history? Because these days, you know, they just tear down a statue because he did this or she did that. History is reduced to, oh, that person was a slave owner. He was terrible, marginalizing, canceling, pigeonholing historical figures and not being able to see them outside of our own modern viewpoint, kind of putting that over them as a template. Can you talk about that just for a minute? Well, sure. Uh, George Washington was a slave owner, and that's the way the economy of Virginia worked. Washington, to his credit, uh, did not like being a slave owner. Uh, he, uh, you read through his letters and every few years he's corresponding with people and saying, boy, I'd like to get out of this. How do I do it? How do I run this plantation of mine without slavery? That's to his credit that he thought this was a problem, a big problem. Now to his demerit is he ended up really not doing anything about it. Um, he did, he did free some of the slaves upon his, upon his, uh, his death. Uh, Martha still retained some slaves, and but but a lot of them eventually were freed. So you can look at the complexity of how he was trying to deal with slavery, and you can say, "Oh, I wish he had done more." But actually, he did do more than most of the people of his of his uh, sort of class and social position at that time. Yes. So, but it's complex. Jefferson, very different. Uh, Jefferson seemed to like being a slave owner, and. Uh, this is controversial over the over the decades, but as historians have increasingly tended to conclude, uh, one of his slaves uh, was his mistress after Jefferson's wife died, uh, and that went on for for several decades. But Jefferson, while he apparently liked uh, that one particular slave, 
he didn't like slaves generally. And it's strange when you read through his writings and his notes on Virginia, uh, he wasn't a white supremacist in the sense of disliking all of the races. He really liked uh, Indians, Native Americans. He admired them. Uh, uh, he liked looking at them. On the other hand, he, he made some really invidious racial comments about blacks. He just didn't like the way they looked uh, and so forth and so on. So you see a variety of things. He, he never, I mean, Jefferson is frustrating in some ways. I, I, uh, uh, I was a, a speechwriter for a while along back. Uh, Jefferson was a drafter of speeches for others, the Declaration of Independence and so forth, uh, a very good draft that Ben Franklin helped with editing. He was a very good writer. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, he really was uh, a racist and, uh, and, and very anti-black. Um, and so what do you do with that? Uh, you know, some positives, some negatives. Uh, Andrew Jackson uh, is a guy I like in lots of ways because I also like Westerns. And, and Jackson was a man of action and adventure. Uh, let me say one other thing about Jackson. Uh, not only did he have a lot of courage, but he had a lot of love for his wife. His wife died shortly before he became president. And so I relish a story about Jackson in the White House after his wife died. He kept reading his three chapters of the Bible every night with a portrait of Rachel Jackson, uh, his late wife, propped up before him because he'd read them with her. And so after she dies, in a way, he's still reading them with her. So the romantic in me likes that. The, the enjoyer of Westerns likes that. Uh, and, and he also... Unlike Jefferson, who really seemed to dislike his, his slaves, except for one, uh, Jackson seemed to like his slaves. And this, at, the, at the other hand, he was very paternalistic towards them. You know, these are my slaves. Um, so there's a lot of stuff here. When Jackson died, uh, some of his last words were he was talking about the Bible. And he says, this is a book given uh, for all of us, black and white. And he intimated that he hoped to see uh, some of his slaves in heaven. Um, so this is this is admirable, and, and given the given the uh, the context of the time. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he very definitely he he held he held on to these to the slaves. And interestingly enough, when there were portraits at the time, I mean, artists drawing Jackson's deathbed, where people gathered around him, which was the custom in the mid nineteenth century, uh, there were. Uh, his slaves, uh, people with black skin, uh, around his deathbed, along with along with whites, in the portraits that were made, there weren't any blacks. There was all whites. So that was part of the racism of the time. So what do you do with this? They're they're human beings. They're complex. Um, I, I suspect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're all we're all we're all beggars before Christ, and and Jackson certainly realized that. He uh, he read the Bible regularly. He, he knew that he was a sinner. And at the same time, you know, he kept sinning, as, as in fact we often tend to do. And, you know, what's it going to be like in a century from now uh, when, when I suspect people will be looking back at, at abortion in the United States and saying, oh, uh, you were against it, but you still tolerated lots of this. So, yeah, it's complex. It is, and I'm glad you brought that up. I, I have another question along those lines, but I, the, the, it's it's it creates this tension inside of me to read this and to read the humanity, and it makes me want to judge each one of these people, you know, who did this heinous thing, especially when you think of Native Amer Americans and what happened to them, especially in the 1800s. 
But um, it also causes me to say, okay, there but by the grace of God go I today and mm-hmm. what's in my own heart yeah. and what darkness is in my own heart, right? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the, the, the good thing, uh, I mean, many good things, but one good thing about, about Christianity is we are, we are sinners and we know that, that Christ died for us. We, we live in a, in a big story of God's rescue of sinners. Uh, and in fact, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm sure you know this, and probably a lot of your listeners do too, one of the things that really differentiates, say, the book of Genesis from other scriptures of the ancient Near East, those scriptures all uh, in Babylon and others uh, said, your ancestors were great people. They were, they were wonderful, and we just need to maybe make Babylon great again. Uh, the Bible is very different. The Bible is a story of family dysfunction, uh, of of dads who who really messed up their kids in lots of ways, playing favorites. Um, you know, Joseph did wonderful things in Egypt, and 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 he forgave his brothers. But politically, uh, Joseph basically, and this was famine, uh, did things that actually increased the power of the of the pharaohs. Uh, reduced again. These were emergency famine situations, but reduced other people in Egypt to slavery. Uh, was favor favoritism towards his own people, uh, uh, and and uh, probably what he did increased animosity of the of the actual uh, native Egyptians to the the Judeans now living in their midst. Uh, so. You know, every every of the every one of the patriarchs—Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph—they're human beings, and they are sinners, as we are sinners. Uh, and yet, these are the these are our our fathers in believing in God, and and God, Christ died for them as He died for us. Yes, and David and Bathsheba and all the rest. Sure. Um, so, to paint history as just the venerated George Washington of chopping down cherry tree and would not tell a lie, et cetera, et cetera, is not true. Neither is true the the varnish of these were all despicable people and we need to start it all over again, but to tell the truth about it. And that's what I, I see you trying to do. There's one other story about Jefferson and that shows his racism, and it was the poet uh, isn't her name Phyllis Wheatley, who was yeah. very well known at the time, and and Jefferson believed that anybody with dark skin had a lesser intellect, or not even that. I'm putting it mildly, right. and his reaction to her poetry was off the charts. He, he denigrated her, right? Yeah, and this is this is one of the differences between Washington and Jefferson. Uh, Wheatley, Phyllis Wheatley in Boston, uh, wrote poems, and a lot of the white folks in Boston were suspicious because they thought her poetry was really good, and they was wondering if there was some white guy who was writing these poems and then just putting them out under her name. Uh, and so they investigated. Uh, they had a meeting with her, and they saw uh, that actually she was just very bright and a very good writer, and she did this herself. I mean that they could they could see that about her, and so through a friend, basically it's a long story, but uh, she wrote a poem about Washington, and that was sent to him, 
And he knew that this is a young black woman. And he knew that perhaps the, the proper thing for Virginia, Virginia gentleman was just to uh, disrespect her. No, he, I mean, he, this is when, when the, uh, the uh, revolutionary troops were surrounding the British in Boston. He had his uh, headquarters in Cambridge, and he invited Phyllis Wheatley to come meet him and chatted with her for half an hour uh, with his officers around and treated her with, with great, great respect, which I suspect really surprised some of his officers. It's just very charming that he did this. He treated her as a, as a very intelligent poet, a human being. And that's not something which uh, which a lot of Virginia slave owners would do. And Jefferson's reaction was very different. Uh, he he thought uh, he thought her stuff was uh, was really bad poetry. Uh, there was another another uh, uh, black gentleman who was a scientist. He he scoffed at him. Uh, Jefferson thought, yeah, these are these are stupid people beneath me. So huge difference. Both slave owners. Uh, I am. I am not in favor of smashing statues generally, uh, but I can certainly understand uh, doing that maybe to a Jefferson statue. I'd rather have it put in a museum and people could study it and see. I'm certainly against smashing Washington statues and renaming schools named after him. A huge difference between these two people, both Virginia slave owners, but very different in the way they, on an individual basis, reacted to black people. That's Dr. Marvin Olasky. The featured resource today here on President's Day is Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. You can find it at the website, chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org. More straight ahead on Moody Radio. This is Chris Fabry live on Moody Radio. Thanks a lot for joining us today on President's Day. Back to Dr. Marvin Olasky in just a moment. I've been talking about Karenette for the past few months, and their desire is to help women and men choose life, not just for the unborn, but also for themselves, abundant life that leads to eternal life through Christ and that relationship with God he provides. Because Christianity is not behavior modification, it's it's real change that happens from the inside out. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? You can have living water, water that will never leave you thirsty, right? That's the real goal of CareNet. It's not just about saving the baby, although it is. It's not just about helping provide alternatives to abortion for the mother, though it is. They are pro-abundant life for everyone involved. And if you go to CareNet today, I guarantee you, you will be encouraged by the work that they're doing and the resources they're providing to help you talk with those who may differ with you on this issue. If you click the green CareNet button, you can see the changed lives, the saved lives, and there are resources to read or download absolutely free. Go to chrisfabrylive.org. You'll see it right there on the homepage, the green CareNet button. Click it today at chrisfabrylive.org. Dr. Marvin Olasky is with us today, author of Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. And here are a few of the people he includes. Of course, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson. There's Henry Clay, who is not a president, 
but many people thought he would become one. He ran three times and lost each time. That's in the early America section. In the transforming America section is Abraham Lincoln. Of course, we got to get to his story. But there's a woman listed here who's really important. You included, Dr. Laskin, that is Madame Restel. And her story reminds me of what I was just talking about regarding CareNet and the people who are today working tirelessly to save the unborn. A cultural wave was unleashed by this woman. You wanted to include her in this book on moral vision. Tell us about that. Yes, I've, I've gotten to know her uh, very well as well as, as well as you can know a historical figure because I the uh, the previous book I wrote was titled The Story of Abortion in America um, and I wanted to include that chapter on her because well the American stories we've just been talking about include slavery but also abortion and uh, uh, I did more about racial justice in my redo and I didn't want to ignore justice for the unborn and her life is just fascinating here's a uh, a poor woman, an immigrant to the United States, uh, who comes into New York City and uh, struggles for a while and then hits upon something that makes her rich, namely doing abortion starting in the late 1830s. And she does abortions all the way from uh, 1830s into the 1870s. Uh, she gains enormous uh, money. Uh, she builds purposely a house on Fifth Avenue. Uh, just north of a new big church that was going up, uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. So the St. Patrick's Cathedral in one block, and then just north of that, Madame Estelle's huge mansion, uh, richly furnished, uh, many uh, parties uh, where all the political leaders and a lot of the business leaders would come and, uh, and enjoy the very expensive food that she served and music and everything. Uh, and this went on. The, uh, the mayor of New York... Uh, presides over the mar- over the wedding of Madame Restell's daughter uh, in in her mansion. Um, so it illustrates the way that that money and power can collude to undermine justice. It also shows in, in that time and in, in some of your previous works and conversations that we've had. You went back to the New York Times in the 1800s, and the Times was very much against abortion in what they wrote about in the opinion pieces, columns that they wrote, right? Right. The fellow who started the New York Times was its editor, uh, a fellow named Henry Raymond, was actually uh, a very uh, thoughtful uh, Presbyterian, uh, started in 1851, and uh, it became uh, a leading pro-life newspaper uh, in the at the very end of the 1860s, and then particularly in uh, in 1871 and thereafter, so very different from what the New York Times became in the you know, later in the 20th and then the 21st century. Touch on the Trail of Tears. You the, the chapter is from Washington to Van Buren. For those who don't know, what was the Trail of Tears, and why is that included? Well, the Trail of Tears itself is something in the uh, in the 1830s. Uh, Particularly uh, with several of the uh, of the of the tribes, uh, Cherokees and others, and, and Creeks and other tribes that were in uh, Georgia, Alabama, parts of Mississippi, uh, parts of Southern Tennessee. Uh, there was also a Seminole Trail of Tears from uh, the Seminole Indians in uh, in Florida, uh, and they were forced to go west, west of the Mississippi. 
uh, first to Arkansas and then and then uh, eventually to, to Oklahoma. And the idea essentially, and this was something that that uh, really every president, starting with with Washington all the way through uh, Jackson and Van Buren, shared, was uh, twofold. Number one, uh, these races are not going to be able to get along. Very different cultures. The Native Americans want to be hunting. Uh, the white folks want to be farming. Uh, very different ways of looking at life, uh, different religions, and so forth. That was number one. They're not going to be able to get along. So number two, um, for that reason and also for economic reasons, namely white folks wanted that land. It was fertile land, and they wanted to farm on it. Uh, we better take these tribes and send them west of the Mississippi River, first Arkansas, then Oklahoma. Um, and originally it was laid out to them, this is great. This is great land. You can hunt. You can do things. People aren't going to bother you. And a lot of the Native Americans were very skeptical about that, and rightly so. And then also, these were their ancestral lands. They did not want to move. So some of them did, and they were different. Some of them were wealthier. Some of them were poor. Some of the wealthier people uh, moved and took uh, uh, riverboats and didn't have a whole lot of problems. But there were a lot of people who didn't want to go, and they were poor, and uh, soldiers came and forced them out of their homes. There was a lot of political intrigue. It looked for a while that they'd be able to stay longer, and they hoped they wouldn't have to move. And then those things fell apart in Washington. And suddenly, soldiers were at their door and saying, you've got to get out. You can take with you what you carry, everything else you leave behind. And uh, thousands were pushed west, uh, sometimes in the middle of winter, ice storms. Uh, a lot of them died and was called the Trail of Tears because of, number one, leaving their land in their homes, and number two, a whole lot of them becoming sick and dying along the way. It's so hard to read uh, that chapter, uh, and it's all included in moral vision, leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. Let me go to Abraham Lincoln then, and there are there's information about Lincoln, especially at the beginning of, of his story about mimicking pastors and their deliveries that I had never seen before uh, about the, the young, the boy Lincoln and his spiritual history. Well, you know, just like sometimes uh, in churches, we, we take the characters of the Old Testament and, and make them exemplary. I mean, here are the people you should try to emulate. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. But the the exemplary teaching these are all these are all great people, wonderful people. We tend to do the same thing here. We say here on President's Day, we tend to do the same things about Washington and Lincoln and others. And uh, Lincoln, uh, wonderfully complex character in lots of ways, with great depth that only some people perceived, and others thought he was, uh, you know, just a big a big ape. Uh, and there were cartoons displaying him as such. But when he was uh, starting, when he was teenage years, a young person, yeah, he would he would mimic the preachers, uh, and uh, um, was I don't know I don't I don't think he made declarations actually as an atheist, but he was certainly an agnostic, and tended to think a lot of the stuff was stupid. Uh, it's not until he really comes to into tension with, into combat with uh, his own sin and what happens in his life and the life surrounding him, that you see a change. I mean, a very difficult marriage to uh, to Mary Todd. Lincoln once joked that, uh, you know, Mary Todd's 
uh, made a name, T-O-D-D, Lincoln once joked that God only needed one D, but the Todd family needed two. Uh, so, you know, she put on airs in lots of ways and was extremely jealous. If there were any other woman who paid any attention to Lincoln, uh, he seems to have been always faithful to her, but she was uh, uh, quite likely to go off on and, and be a terror. Um, so there was all that difficulty in his life. He just had to take it and, and absorb it. He, he had given vows till death do we part. But then also uh, in his family, uh, one of his beloved sons died in 1862, uh, so just a, just a boy. Uh, and then all the death around him. The District of Columbia was full of death, and the soldiers came back from the battlefields and uh, were dying in hospitals, dying on the streets, dying here, dying there. And Lincoln was responsible in lots of ways for that. He felt that way and mourned. So all of this added up to what the people who came to know him and a nearby pastor was a decided change in his theology. He moved into a belief of some kind of God, it's still not clear exactly what, but you can just see the difference in the speeches he gave and his the notes he made, the way he talked with other people until you come to his magnificent second inaugural address in 1864, which is, you know, probably the, the best theological statement by any president ever. You know, here are these terrible things are happening. We're not quite sure why. We don't know why God in his providence acts as he does. Uh, and it just went on that way. I mean, just a deep sense that that wow, God's in charge. I don't know what's going on. And nevertheless, here's my duty as I understand it, and I must do it. Uh, just just uh, a, a theological and political depth that he never showed as a young man. That's Dr. Marvin Olasky. It is a fascinating book, Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. It's a history of all of the people that we've been talking about and a whole lot more. And it's almost like Dr. Olasky sitting down next to you. And let me tell you a story. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you this snippet of George Washington's life and Abraham Lincoln's life and Booker T. Washington and Ida B. Wells. You can find it at the website, chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org. Hey, thanks for joining us on this President's Day, and thank you for your support of Chris Fabry Live. We have what I think is one of the most evangelistically motivating resources we've ever offered as a thank you. Ron Hutchcraft's A Life That Matters, Reach out today. We need your help in February. And if you can be a Backfence partner and give each month, that would be such an encouragement. You can find us online. Easiest way to give is to go to chrisfabrylive.org, chrisfabrylive.org, and scroll down to see how you can be a friend or a partner with us today, chrisfabrylive.org where you'll also find out about our featured resource from Dr. Marvin Olasky, Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. Now, we are not going to get to Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I can just tell it. And if you want to read the excellent perspective of our guest on the last two presidents, find the book, spend some time with it. You may agree, you may disagree with what Dr. Olasky writes, but I want to make a point about Abraham Lincoln here. I have always been enamored with the complexity of Lincoln and the slavery issue and the change that he went through in the years leading up to his presidency and then during the war itself and afterwards. 
But what captivates me today is his ability to give a very short address in 1863 in Pennsylvania. And what he does is not make a delineation between the soldiers from the North and the soldiers from the South. I'm going to quote, We have come to dedicate a portion of that field, this is in Gettysburg, We've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. Dr. Alasky, talk about Lincoln's desire to keep the Union rather than splitting the country apart. I think if uh, some of the other contenders for the Republican nomination, such as William Seward, if, if they had won, Seward was the favorite going into the, into the convention. Uh, if Seward and some others had won, I don't know if there would have been a civil war. Uh, there was a lot of tendency among people, for example, uh, Horace Greeley, who was the very influential editor of the New York Tribune, at one point, just saying, well, let them go. You know, we will have a pure United States, the northern part of the country and the south. You know, what will happen to them will happen to them, and we're not going to fight a war. Lincoln really believed in the Union and uh, really thought there was a way that um, that the United States could actually be united. Uh, he probably underestimated the difficulty of that, uh, as just about everyone north and south did when the war began in 1861. They all thought it would be over quickly, each side thinking, well, we're going to whip the other side. Uh, at a certain point, there was a realization, hey, that's not going to happen. And Lincoln came to the tragic conclusion that he had to do what he called doing the arithmetic. Namely, the north had more soldiers more guns, more bullets. The North could also replace soldiers because there were lots of immigrants coming in. People like Joseph Pulitzer uh, came to the United States during the Civil War and joined the Army. So they could replace people. Um, and Lincoln then said, well, it's going to be a war of attrition. Uh, we're going to fight. We're going to lose thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But the South will also lose thousands and thousands of people, and they can't replace them. So Lincoln had a great guilt over that, but he thought that's the only way to win the war. And then as the war came on, I mean, developed, and it became a war to end slavery, he thought that's the only way we're going to end slavery. Um, and one of the tragic things in American history is that uh, certainly in 1865, people record the North won the war. The Southern armies were defeated. And then for the next 12 years, there's, uh, there's Reconstruction. But starting in 1877, uh, Reconstruction ends. And a lot of the blacks in the South are, are in slavery again by another name. Uh, they still have, they have laws that treat them as second-class citizens. If they do, if they, if they even do something that's slightly against these laws, they're going to be thrown, to, taken to a prison farm and worked essentially as slaves. So in some ways, starting in 1877, it looked as if the South had won the Civil War. And that's very tragic because all these lives— you know, at least 600,000 people uh, died to keep the United States together and end slavery. And uh, one of the tragedies of American history is that the second part of it ended legally, but in some ways not socially. And it is sad. And isn't, 
isn't history sad? And isn't doesn't that bring tension? But as I look at my own life, I think, you know, how, what a knucklehead I was back there for doing this or that or the other thing or the way that I thought yeah. or, you know, and so the history of the country is the same as the history of our own lives or our own family. And so yeah. I think what your book does is make me a little more kind to those who were in and not to excuse them at all any more than I excuse David for his, you know, the murder and the adultery, but to make me more kind to the times in which they lived and the decisions that, that they were, that they were weighed down by. Yep. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and there's, um, I mean, Lincoln understood this uh, as he came to certain judgments about the South, but, and then right afterwards would say, "Well, but we're we're told uh, not not to judge in this invidious way." Uh, so he under he understood. He came to understand his own sin and the sin of people both in the North and the South. And you know, I think that's what I like about uh, learning learning history. I I learn about other people, and in the process, I also learn about myself. Bingo. That's exactly what happens when you read a good book about history. You are confronted not just with them, you're confronted with yourself. Dr. Olasky, you, you've done a great job in pulling together so much information, and you've made it not only readable and relatable, but fascinating. And as I mentioned toward the end of the book, you deal with some presidents in our lifetimes. You know, assessing character is the epilogue which informs us here in this year when we will again choose someone for president. Thank you for spending some time with us at Back Fence today, and happy President's Day. Well, you too, Chris. And, you know, you're not only a good interviewer, but also a good novelist. So it's always a pleasure talking with you. That's very kind of you, Dr. Marvin Olasky, author of the new, updated, expanded, edited, changed book titled Moral Vision, Leadership from George Washington to Joe Biden. It has a new foreword by Russell Moore, as well as the original foreword by Charles Colson. And we have it linked at the website, chrisfabrylive.org. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and that this will whet your appetite for historical reading. I think Dr. Olasky is right. When we read about those in the past, we learn more about them and their times and more about ourselves. Again, find that featured resource at chrisfabrylive.org. Coming up tomorrow, we're back live with you to talk with a man who says kindness has fallen on hard times. Every day you see incivility. Somebody is tackling a referee or yelling at somebody else on a plane. What is the antidote to that? You're going to hear about it right here at the Radio Backyard Fence. Chris Fabry Live is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.